Welcome to the Sanctions Space podcast. I am Justine Walker, Global Head of Sanctions, Compliance and Risk at ACAMS. This series brings you the stories behind sanctions. What are the trends? Who are the key people? And how do the threads of the past shape future thinking? Joining me today is Emily Rees, Senior Fellow at the European Centre for International Political Economy and Managing Director at Trade Strategies. Emily has an extensive and for this podcast very appropriate career in trade policy and economic diplomacy. Emily, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me, Justine. So Emily, previous podcasts have foreshadowed what may happen in the event of a Russian invasion into Ukraine. We didn't expect it. We were talking about it speculatively, but it's now happened. Some immediate thoughts on the scale and what are we seeing? Well, first, Justine, as a European, I must express, I mean, just how devastating it is to see the return of war in Europe. I mean, there really is no legitimate reason to invade a sovereign country, killing civilians and destroying livelihoods. And so my thoughts today are therefore first and foremost with with brave Ukrainians. But perhaps from the viewpoint of Brussels, which is where I sit, I think it's fair to say that we are living extraordinary times. I mean, in one week, we have seen governments change their historical policy positions in what is really now being considered to be a watershed moment, particularly for defence policy. What we are seeing is a breaking of major taboos. Allow me to just go through a couple of them, uh, spring to mind first. After suggesting it would only supply 5,000 defensive helmets to Ukraine, Germany has now decided to make a historical turnaround and will be providing offensive arms supplies to other countries. Germany also threw in the towel on Nord Stream 2 that has now filed for bankruptcy. And for the first time in the European Union's history, the bloc has announced assistant measures worth 500 million euros, it will probably increase, to finance the provision of equipments and supplies to Ukraine, including lethal equipment. The EU, as the US, UK and others, are also denying permission to land, take off from or overfly their territories to any aircraft operated by Russian air carriers. In the UK, we've also seen domestic ports that have been told not to provide access to Russian ships. Let's keep in mind that almost 200,000 Russians work on the world's merchant ships. I mean, this is really quite extraordinary. In other news, we saw Ukraine, Georgia and Moldova also ask to join the EU, raising a whole new range of questions as to the future structure of the European Union. And finally, in Geneva, at the World Trade Organization, we are observing a major splintering of multilateralism. Under World Trade Organization rules, countries are not allowed to discriminate between members and they must trade with them on the same terms as they offer to others. And that's known as the most favored nation treatment. Now, the European Union has just started considering whether to rescind Russia's most favored nation rights in the WTO. And that comes in the wake of Canada's decision yesterday to do so. Ukraine has asked Russia to be expelled from the trade institution, and no doubt over the next week we're going to see a lot more unravel on that front. So that's already quite a lot to process for a single week. 
It is indeed. And, and I mean, we've been trying to unpack all of the developments by way of briefings, webinar, global roundtables. You know, we've just set up a Ukraine crisis hub, which is trying to help our members navigate the way through all these changes. And you're right, we go to sleep and we wake up in the middle of the night and two hours later, something else has happened by way of financial sanctions. But where I really want to speak to you is about trade, because this is very much at the front and centre of the political response. How is the trade element manifesting itself? The trade element is unravelling. And I think that we're only just starting to analyse the ramifications of what's happening. Just to give you a quick example, Ukraine supplies around half of the world's neon gas. And that's uh, indispensable to make microchips, which are used in phones, cars and appliances. So that already is going to have quite a, a strong knock-on effect on a number of industrial sectors. The country also supplies Krypton, and that's used to make semiconductors. And these are areas, chips and semiconductors, where we already have persistent supply shocks, which are the result in part of COVID-19. And so we're going to see matters worsen quite dramatically, perhaps with new calls to nearshore, to reshore industrial processes. But effectively, without the input, the original input, all of that is going to be put into great perspective. There's also a question around the delinking of the Russian Central Bank and, and certain Russian banks from SWIFT, which you'll know far better than I. But that effectively makes trade unviable in most areas of the economy. And it is leaving companies scrambling, not only for new suppliers, but very soon for new markets as well. What we're seeing is that companies are now facing an urgent decision as to whether to supply or not these markets, and particularly the Russian market. You know, when we think about it, businesses thrive thanks to the rule of law and upholding international law and democratic values are evidently now going to feature more strongly in their corporate responsibility, but also in their evaluation of risk. So what we will see is stakeholders, including shareholders, requesting that companies effectively choose sides, act with morality front of mind, and come out of the Russian market. In another area, that of big ocean carriers, we are seeing that suspended orders for shipments and that cargo is now being diverted to other destinations. Spot rates for shipping containers are now soaring worldwide. And that's going to have dramatic effects once again for global spillover as supply chains are only just recovering from the impact of COVID-19. Companies are going to have to take big decisions as to what they do and whether it's still worth trading. We saw, for instance, in shipping and maritime services, companies such as Hapagloid stopping to take orders from Ukraine and having now placed temporary blocking suspensions for shipments in and out of Russia. Maersk and MSC have taken the decision to also apply a suspension on container bookings in and out of Russia and have put all the Ukraine bound freight to be discharged either in Egypt or Turkey. Now, this is effectively what's happened this week. But what we're going to start seeing is a much more structural decision as to how logistics should be organized with regards to Russia. With these financial transactions mostly disabled, what we're going to see, plus the logistics and high disruptions, 
Many companies are simply just going to take the decision to not supply these markets. We've seen some decisions, and that comes back to our ESG front. Nike, Disney, IKEA, LVMH, and other consumer-facing brands have already closed shop in Russia. I would expect that a lot of other Western brands will follow suit. Where it's going to become a bit more tricky is for food and pharmaceuticals. So we see companies such as Nestle, McDonald's, and Unilever really having to grapple with the question of whether to continue trading in food because they are effectively granted humanitarian exemptions under sanction regimes. And of course, the same goes for pharmaceutical companies. Again, a lot of big decisions, a lot of disruption and changes to supply chains to take place as days pass. Thanks, Emily. I mean, that is a phenomenal amount of change. And certainly the sanctions professionals, many of which listen to this podcast, are really looking at how do they manage with the financing side. And as you're right in saying, there's going to be some really important decisions sitting there on their desks right at this very present minute, but in the weeks to come as well. And some of those carve outs around food is going to be really important. And it's on that element I really want to ask you the next question, because Russia and Ukraine are both significant players in terms of global food security. From what you're seeing and hearing, and I know this was a topic on the Munich Security Council, but is there, or Security Conference, I should say, but is there the potential that this conflict will lead to secondary conflicts in other parts of the world because of the food security element? That's a great question, and it is indeed going to spark civil unrest, or at least that would be our expectation. Allow me maybe to wind back as to why. Ukraine and Russia are both major agricultural powerhouses and exporters. And so any extended conflict in this region is going to drive food prices to spiral upwards around the world. Where do we have the highest level of exposure? Allow me to start there is in vegetable oils, particularly sunflower oil, where both countries make up for 57% of world exports. Next in line is wheat, that's bread. Russia and Ukraine combined are substantial actors in supplying the cereal around the world and especially to the Mediterranean basin with major food insecurity implications. Corn is also relevant in this context. For instance, half of the EU's imported corn comes from Ukraine, meaning that any disruption in access to market will also drive inflation in segments such as animal proteins and others. And it was interesting that when Emmanuel Macron was making his discourse to the nation yesterday, he mentioned to the French people that the cost of bread, the cost of food is going to go up and that that is part of the cost of freedom. What's going to happen here is where the main concern is, is that with men between the ages of 18 and 60 now being called in to volunteer in defending Ukraine's integrity, a lot of the next steps depend on how long the conflict lasts and whether there's going to be time to plant and harvest. It's important to remind ourselves that barley, corn, oats, buckwheat are all planted in around April and May, so pretty soon. And they're harvested in late summer. Wheat, on the other hand, works a bit differently. That will have already been planted at the end of last summer with the harvesting to occur in the summer months in this part of the world of July and August. Either way, what's gonna happen is a major disruption on grain markets. We've already seen the markets reacting. And that can have severe consequences for certain countries that are more dependent than others on these supplies. 
particularly comes to mind Egypt and Turkey that depend on the combined Russian and Ukrainian imports for wheat supply at a level of 70% plus. Yemen, Libya, Lebanon, they also find themselves in a particularly sensitive situation. So does Nigeria and Sudan. And these countries are already facing food insecurity. And in many cases, they are also facing outstanding conflicts that could worsen if the price of bread goes through the roof. Now, when it comes to Russia's own food security, it's a slightly more sensitive topic, I believe. Much depends on whether the country is going to be able to continue sourcing from countries such as China and India. And again, how far will the shipping company's decisions go and how will that affect the trade in food under humanitarian exemptions? If a country has the legal ability or a company the legal ability to export food to Russia under a sanctions regime, but logistically can't find a container to put that food in, then you have a problem. Smaller companies without strong compliance teams will probably be weary of not getting paid and will just simply decide to not supply. So again, a lot of international dynamics on these questions and a lot to keep our eyes out for as the situation unravels. And Emily, what about the two embargoes on the two breakaway regions in Ukraine? Because certainly what we're looking at in the compliance community is how do you identify sort of cities and towns in those regions? How do you manage any financial engagement or a transaction which is associated to trade with those regions? What sort of impact is the breakaway regions going to have on just everything that you've talked about here? That's an excellent question. I mean, I'm not an international lawyer dealing with these issues. The question I would gather is not only what the status of those regions are, and we can see that also coming up ahead for Belarus, what will be the status of Belarus in weeks to come. But again, I think that what we look at, I would say as trade analysts, is the actual supply of the market. Is it possible logistically? I think that's where we make that differentiation between the legal element and the practical possibility to trade with these regions. So effectively, the question would then become, what trade are we talking about? And if it is under the humanitarian exemptions, the question is, how do you get that in? And from which side? So the breakaway regions, are they being supplied by Russia? So, I mean, again, these are really questions which are key and I think that there is still a lot of conversations to be had in order to answer such a question. And, you know, you are correct. I mean, these questions are key. And at the moment, we are very much looking at the immediate political and sanctions response. And that is really being prioritised over everything else and the hope that we're going to somehow have an impact on the current invasion. Russia will pull back, will manage to have a change in policy. But in drawing this to conclusion, you know, what can we tell will be happening in the coming days? I mean, we can't tell what's going to be happening in the coming days. I think that's really clear. None of us can predict anything. But beyond the next few days and the next weeks, what should the global community really be thinking about? What should they be focused on and looking beyond the next few weeks? Justine, what should we be focusing on right now? I mean, I can't think of anything else than the Ukrainian people. We do have a duty now and we must do everything in our power at everyone's level to avoid Kiev becoming another Sarajevo. 
that really is for me what we should be thinking about first and foremost. Emily, thank you so much for your insights here. These are really important. We focus so much on most of the time on the financial sanctions element, but in this scenario, it plays out so critically to the wider trade dimensions and what may happen both in Russia and Ukraine, but more globally. I do hope listeners have found today's discussion useful. If you want to learn more about the precise sanctions, whether that be swift disconnection, central bank restrictions, all the asset freezes we're seeing, the targeting of oligarchs, then please do tune in to our sanctions space website. We have a whole Ukraine rapid response hub there and a number of virtual global roundtables and webinars underway. Emily, again, thank you. Discussing this devastating conflict through the wider trade and food security lens is very much appreciated by us. Thank you, Justine.